and it would be good if you had somebody in mind that perhaps you could invite is to pray for them beforehand and uh, let the Spirit of God soften their hearts. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see men and women come to Christ? Wouldn't that be great if, if they got an invitation and they came and the Lord really opened up their hearts to the gospel? That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? All right, let's come together to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's Gospel, 5th chapter. And then we'll just read uh, one verse together, which is verse 13. Just give you a moment to find that. It's a familiar verse. You'll know it well. Jesus speaking here said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot of men. You are the salt of the earth. No one, I'm sure, would argue with me tonight that this world is in a terrible state. And even though, in spite of great progress and advancements in several fields, I think that we have regressed spiritually and morally. Morally, I think that Great Britain as a nation is bankrupt. Television producers, movie makers are continually ever pushing the boundaries of decency. And sadly, some Christians go now to movies that 20 years ago that even the unsaved would have been embarrassed to see. Spiritually, we are in darkness. When a prime minister stands up and says that he has prayed before he has sent troops into battle, he has prayed to God, uh, then we find that television pundits and newspaper editors, uh, they go ballistic that a prime minister of Great Britain should mention the G word. <laughs> Just a few years ago, Alistair, Campbell, who was the spin doctor for the then Prime Minister Tony Blair, American reporter asked him about Tony Blair's religious convictions, and he very tersely said, we don't do God. Well, Britain better start doing God. If somebody doesn't do God's sin in Britain, it is absolutely finished as a nation. Spiritually and morally, it is only a shadow of the great nation that it used to be. It used to be that Britain was the nation that sent missionaries to the ends of the earth continually. Not so much anymore. The statistics for church attendance in GB makes grim reading. It's not a little alarming. Some of the top BBC newsreaders, people like Andrew Marr and uh, that fellow Vine, Highly respected newsreaders said that within the BBC there is a culture that is against Christianity and it's endemic and systemic within the BBC from the top down. And they said they're embarrassed about it. It is so bad. And we see Christians daily being subjected to charges of homophobia with an ever-increasing belligerent 
intolerant gay agenda that sees every voice of disagreement as a hate crime. Just this past couple of days, a, a housing trust in Manchester, uh, one of their workers uh, has been pulled over the coals and treated with, uh, said he was uh, guilty of mis gross misconduct and his wages has been docked £14,000 a year simply because on his own private Facebook message he said that gay marriages and churches is an equality too far. And they jumped on him and treated him shabbily. In fact, Peter Tatchell, who's the most uh, gay activist in Britain today said it was ridiculous. <laughs> Even he said it was ridiculous. He says because the man did it privately and he did it with, with some sensitivity and he wasn't over the top. He says even though I vehemently disagree with his views but he's entitled to have his views because it's a free country. <laughs> well, not according to that housing trust in Manchester, it isn't. So that seems to be the way things are going. Seems incredible, doesn't it, that Britain, who's the champion of democracy all over the world, and yet when it comes to Christians in this country, they strengthen the laws against a Christian expressing their firmly held beliefs in case it may offend someone. Well, I've got news for you, Mr. Prime Minister. We too get offended as Christians. We get offended, greatly offended, when we watch the BBC and we see blasphemy and crassness and our tax money's paying for it. That offends us. We get offended whenever we see Richard Dawkins, who's the poster boy for atheism in Britain today, and he's on and he's spouting against Christians and says they're all deluded. And what they believe is fairy stories, not only that, it's dangerous what they believe and it never ever should be taught in schools because it's false and it's dangerous and it's anti-scientific and he's on TV all the time and not one single person in the BBC stands up to him. I don't know about you, but that offends me. It offends me, and I watched it in the news this week, it offends me whenever the Prime Minister threatens to cut off aid to one of the poorest nations in the world, Malawi because they have some repressive laws against segments of the community. And what offends me is that they say absolutely nothing in defense of Christians all over the world who day and daily are being persecuted even unto death, where churches are being burned down in Egypt and other nations, and not one prime minister of this nation has the guts to stand up and say that's wrong and we're going to take a stand against it. That offends me. I don't know how it offends you, but it offends me. So is this trend irreversible? So nothing can be done. Are we to surrender to the dark forces that permeate every facet of our society and our nation? Is there no answer to this downward spiral of godlessness and irreverence? Yes, there is. There is an answer. You and I are the answer. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. He said in another place, you are the light of the world. And so there is an answer. 
And the answer lies with us. It doesn't lie with the government. It lies with us. Thank God for those in government who are believers. Thank God for MPs who are genuine, true believers and who alert us to pray about these things. I was looking at the website of the Christian Institute the other day. I don't know if you ever look at it. You ought to look at it. Just go on and have a look at it. See what your MPs vote for in Parliament. You make it an eye-opener to know what they vote for and what they don't vote for. Thank God for the believers who are in there who get it difficult, whose voice maybe is heard small, but at least they're in there and they're saying something on behalf of believers everywhere. So Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, in Bible times, salt was a great commodity. Roman soldiers were often paid in salt, believe it or not. In fact, that's where the term comes from, you're worth your salt. Somebody says to you, you're worth your salt. That's where the term comes from. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. Palestine's salt was plentiful. There were salt marshes. The Dead Sea was and is full of salt. Gary there swam in it and lives just a couple of weeks ago. There's that much salt in it you couldn't sink. Sure you couldn't. You didn't need to float. You didn't even have to swim. You just lie there. In fact, he says it's very hard to stand up in it, isn't it? And so salt was a, a commodity that when Jesus spoke of salt, he, he knew his audience would know what he's talking about. Salt has certain properties, various uses. Let's look and see what they were. Simply, salt was something that was purified. Purification. Salt cleanses. Salt purifies. Salt is an agent for good. Salt heals and hardens the wounds. When I was growing up, if you get cuts in your feet, your mother would get a basin out and put some water in it, put a whole lot of salt in it until you stick your feet in it. Didn't have sting. <laughs> but it was good. It worked. It purified. It cleansed. And so the church is an agent within the world that ought to have a healing, purifying, cleansing ability to change, to make a difference, to do something. We have the cure for brokenness. Many people feel broken and wounded and shattered, disenfranchised, hurt, cut off. The church should be an oasis, a hospital, a place of recovery in these tough times. Thank God for the church. Amen? Amen. It's not perfect. We get it wrong lots of times. I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about the church. But thank God for it. Thank God for the church around the world. Somebody said that the world at its worst needs the church at its best. And boy, isn't that the truth. The world at its worst needs the church at its best. Somebody also said the ministry of the church is a ministry of people. When a church lives, it is because the people within are vital and active. When a church dies... It withers and dies, not because the bricks and mortar and carpets and pews get old and begin to crack and rip and crumble. A church withers and dies because the people in it wither and die. If the salt is lost, it's flavor. 
may we never lose our flavor. Amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul uses another metaphor here. In verse 14 he says, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. Whenever we're in our community, we're salt, we're light, but Paul also says we're like a fragrance. The people pick up. And those who respond to it, those who welcome it, us, in Christ's name, it's a wonderful fragrance. It's a fragrance of life to them. But those who reject us and they reject the message that we bring, we smell like death to them. We smell like death to them. But thank God for those that to us that we smell like life to them. And so here we are, the salt of the earth. The salt speaks of preservation. Salt preserves. It stops the rot. Bad as this world is tonight, it would be an awful lot worse if it wasn't for the church. If it wasn't for true Christianity, and I, I, I say true Christianity, it would be in a worse state. Lots of things has been done in the name of Christianity. Lots of bad things. A lot of pain and injustice has been done in the name of Christianity, but not of true Christianity. Now be that as it may, I would still rather live in a country that is influenced by Christianity rather than communism or atheism. I would still rather be in a country that's influenced by Christianity rather than a country that's influenced by Buddhism or Islam or any other ism. Thank God for Christianity. Where do you suppose that the great philanthropic organizations came from? Where did you think they sprung from? Orphanages, hospitals, hospices, charities, almsgiving. All of the, almost all of it came from the influence of Christianity. If you took Christianity out of the equation today, most of the things I've mentioned, there wouldn't be. Missions, like the Salvation Army, the city missions that works in the inner city areas, reaching out to the poor and the needy, Children's missions like Boys Brigade and Girls Brigade and Teen Challenge and Dr. Bernardo's working with kids and with children. Royal Institute for the Blind. The Red Cross and hundreds more like them. All of them sprung out of the influence of Christianity. And what a difference all of these has made for the betterment of humanity. 
this past week or so that the internet has been a buzz. Some of you probably saw it on YouTube. You see a lot of things on YouTube. A lot of it you don't want to see. But did you see the two incidents in China last week involving two children? And how that one little girl was, was ran over in the street with a car? An accident, no doubt. And how that a camera just happened to be trained in that area and how so many people just walked past that little child as if it was just a piece of dirt lying on the floor until another car ran over it. And then at last, somebody, somebody went and picked the child up. And the excuse was, well, we didn't want to be accused of maybe doing that. Where's the compassion? Where's the mercy? And then, even worse than that, a few days later, a truck driver hit, I think it was a little boy, hit a child, knocked him down, got out of the truck, saw what they had done, got into the truck, and reversed over the child to kill it. And he was arrested. His excuse was, I wouldn't have been able to pay for the hospital bills, so I thought I'd better, better, better kill it instead. Let you know something about the society that persecutes Christians, that imprisons them, that puts them to death, that closes the churches. And you know the, the sad part about all of this is that Europe, who's bust today, financially bust, is going to China cap in hand asking for billions. And they'll not be able to say one word against their human rights record. Not one word. If they take their billions, they'll not be able to say a word. America can't say anything to China about its human rights issues because it owes them trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Thank God for Christianity tonight. Thank God for salt in this old world that we live in. Salt's good for seasoning, isn't it? Actually, I don't take salt in the food. So this is a bit academic to me. <laughs> Sally makes up for it. She puts salt in everything. I know, just for you. Yes, that's what I mean, just for you. She doesn't put it in the food, she puts it on her food because she likes it, and that's fair enough. I just don't really care for it much. And they say that too much ingested salt is not good for you. Not right, Doc? There you are. The Doc nodded his head, so it must be true. I'm a doctor, trust me. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's used for seasoning. And it's in all our food, isn't it? Big fight today is there's too much of it in it. But it is in it. And so, in Colossians chapter 4, it talks about seasoning. 
Colossians chapter 4. Verse 5, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, as unbelievers, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Jesus, sorry, Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And so our speech ought to be with grace seasoned with salt. We ought to be able to talk to those outside with grace but with a pinch of salt. In other words, we ought to show grace and mercy to them, but also the challenge, a pinch of salt thrown in. And so God has given us a ministry, an ability to be able to speak to those outside with grace, but seasoned with salt. Paul talked about that it may impart grace to the hearers in Luke 4.22. So all bore witness to him, speaking of Jesus, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Jesus was wonderful at speaking so graciously and kindly and compassionately and mercifully but he was wonderfully good at just dropping in the salt, wasn't he? <laughs> he could just drop in the salt too. And so God has given us this ability to be able to speak to others with grace and with salt. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Is there grace in it? Is there salt in it? Is it tasteful? Is it helpful? Is it encouraging? Is it strengthening? Is it lightening? Is it challenging? Is it light? Bringing, is it life-giving? Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. So we are the salt of the earth. Some Christians are so light and so loose with their tongues that they stumble others that they work with. I used to work with a bunch of men, a uh, bunch of Christian men, and for the most part, they were great. But there was one in particular, and he was so loose and light with his words that the unbelievers around, they didn't respect or honor him because he didn't sound much different than they did a lot of the times. And how many know that if you're a believer and you try to talk and act like an unbeliever, it doesn't impress them one bit, sure it doesn't. They would rather you be true and out and out a believer than be a hypocrite because they just do not like that. 
And so, we've got to use our language right when we're talking to the unsaved. James chapter 3 tells us about our words and how important that they are. Verse 1 of James 3, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect or a mature man. Able also to bridle a whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives on a grapevine, bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. Tongue is a little member. One of the smallest members of the body, but one of the most dangerous. It can do the most harm. Just one word can make the difference, can't it? And all of us without exception have been guilty of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. And we wished at that moment we could have just grabbed that, took it back, but we couldn't. It was said, we spoke it. And the person received it. And so James warns us that the tongue is a member that's very, very hard to tame. And it's only the grace of God, and it's only the Word of God, and it's only the goodness of God that helps us to be able to keep our words right so that we season our speech with salt and grace. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about you don't need to turn to it, but Jesus talks about our words. And he said, and he was talking to the Pharisees, and he said to them, by your words you're justified, and by your words you are condemned. And Jesus put a very high premium on the words that we speak. Somebody says that's why God gave you one mouth and two ears. And sometimes we don't put our brain into gear before we open our trap. Sure we don't. <laughs> sure we don't. We just blab it out. 
in a moment of anger or defenses were down or we weren't thinking straight and we just say something. But we can justify or condemn ourselves by our words, Jesus said. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're just about almost finished here in a moment, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the scholars or the masters of assemblies, says in the margin, are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. And so the writer here, who was Solomon, Talks about goads. A goad, you know, is that pointed stick that the farmer used whenever the animal was yoked to the plough. And it would go along and he would jab it every now and again with a goad. Whenever Jesus met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, they said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. That's what he was talking about. The Spirit of God was jabbing him, convicting him, speaking to his heart, and he was kicking against it, just the way the old cow would kick against the, the stick when it, the farmer would jab it. And so the words of the preacher, well-chosen words, words of truth, right words, are like goads. And a God motivates us. It wakes us up. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need wakened up. And maybe I'm listening to somebody else preaching on a sermon or I've read an article in a magazine or a book that somebody has written and it goads me. It jabs me. Because maybe there's near my life I've been sleeping. Now I know you're not like that because you're super spiritual and you wouldn't do things like that. Just me does things like that. But suddenly I'm awakened. It's brought to my attention. So God awakens us. God motivates us. It gives us inspiration. It urges us on. And that's what the farmer was doing with the cow yoke to the, the, the oxen yoke to the plow. He was urging it on to keep the furrow straight. Making sure it was in line. And we need urging on. And this is what the Word of God does for us. It urges us on. It also gives us realization, helps us to discover our potential in Christ, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. We talked about that this morning when we said you're ambassadors for Christ. It also gives us resuscitation. It keeps us from quitting when we're tired. When you're weary, you feel you're battling, struggling, and you're getting nowhere, and you just want to lie down. I don't know any believer that, that hasn't happened to yet. There comes a point in the battle, in the struggle, in the difficulty, 
And you just want to lie down. You just said, Lord, I can't fight this. And I'm just tired and weary of the fight. And then the Word of God comes in. And it helps you to keep on going on. And it just, it just keeps at you. And, and just gives you the added strength that you need for the journey. And that's why we need to read the Word of God. Because when it's in your heart, then it comes up out of your heart. He said the words of the preachers, it goes and it kneels. What does a nail do? A nail says, a well-driven nail. Whenever we got this building, many, many years ago, before hardly one of you has ever set foot in it, and me and a couple of others had to bang it into shape, of course, I was much younger then. I was stronger and fitter. But I remember in that little room, which is now the crash, because this, this was a ballroom at a time. And in there was, they weren't allowed to sell alcohol in the premises. This has gone back a long time. So what they called the mineral bar. So you could buy Cokes and lemonade and Sprites, but you couldn't buy any drink. Of course, they brought it in with them. They bought it outside and brought it in, but you couldn't buy it in there. So they had this bar, and it was a, a beautiful bar, handmade, padded in the front and the sides, like a proper bar. Trouble is, it was no good to us, so we had to remove it. Well, what a job trying to remove that thing. The nails were at least six inches. They were into the floor. I think they were down through the ceiling of the building below. I mean, they were six-inch nails. At one point, whenever we got the crowbar underneath it and put it on top of a block, I, at one point, which is daft, to show you the daft it was. Of course, when you're younger, you are daft. This is like something Johnny Northey would do. <laughs> He's a demolition man in here. <laughs> at one point, I stood in the bar, and I jumped on the crowbar. I actually jumped. I mean, the thing's a bit... No, up to that. I jumped off it and jumped to the crowbar and I sprung off the crowbar. <laughs> That's how thick the nails were. It was never, ever, ever meant to come out. A nail strengthens us. That was to make that strong. A nail strengthens us. Nahum 1 and 7 says, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who trust in him. And so the word of God, it, it, it's a stronghold. It gives you strength. It, it, it ties you down. It battens you down. It makes you immovable. It stabilizes us. In Ephesians chapter 4, <laughs> Ephesians, <laughs> That's Christopher yawning there. <laughs> it's all right, son, I'll soon be through. <laughs> I'll put you out of your misery in a minute or two. <laughs> He's tired, isn't he? He's just a child. <laughs> in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about winds of doctrines that blow. Winds of doctrines. They come and they go and they blow here 
and they blow there, and they're swirling all around the world today. And you need to know the truth. You need to know the truth. If you're going to be stable in your Christian life, you need to know the truth. One of the very top preachers in America last week was asked, did a, a newspaper interview in the, in the biggest newspaper in America, was asked about the Mormon church because the Mormon issue is a big thing in America. One of the runners for president is a Mormon. So that has just highlighted Mormonism all over America. And he was asked his views on Mormonism. First thing he says, well, I don't know very much about it. I've never studied it. He's got the biggest church in America, and he doesn't even know what a Mormon believes. And then he says, well, this man says that uh, he loves Jesus, and Jesus is his Savior, and so that's a core issue, so that's good enough for me. Man is absolutely clueless. He hasn't got an idea. He doesn't know that the Mormon's Jesus is different than our Jesus. Entirely different. Hadn't even got a clue. Not a notion. I'm thinking, God help the congregation. God help them. Haven't got a clue. This is what Paul said, winds of doctrines. And you got to know what you believe. Because if you don't know what you believe, you'll be open to anything. No good telling, well, I just love the Lord. I don't have to believe. I don't have to know. And I, no, 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 you have to know. That's what Paul says. <clears throat> Paul writes to Timothy and he warns him about it. He says, there's a day coming, he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine. heap on themselves teachers having itching ears. But an eel stabilizes you. strengthens you. It secures you. It secures you. It secures you. Do you feel secure in Christ tonight? Are you stable? Are you strong? Then you're salt in this world. You're salt in this world. Now here's the last thing. One of the things salt was used for and still is today in the Middle East, particularly among Arabs, is covenant. Covenant. Leviticus 2.13, don't need to turn to it. Every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all of your offerings you shall offer salt. Numbers 18.19 All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord I have given to you and to your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. There are several covenants in the Old Testament. There was covenants of God to man. There was covenants between man and man. There was covenants between nations and tribes. There was covenants between friends. All kinds of covenants. But the salt covenant was between God and man. And the salt covenant signified that it would be lasting. It would be in perpetuity. That it would go on and go on and go on because salt would stop the corruption. And so he instituted salt covenant and they knew what salt was for. So when he instituted a salt covenant, they knew this is meant to last. 
This is meant to stay good and pure and whole and not rot and decay and be lost. Whenever we go to the Ukraine, and it's happened, it's happened to many of us who went there, one of the things they'll do, in fact, the last time we were there with the House of Culture, and this woman comes out with this great big loaf, big home-baked loaf. There's a little indentation in the middle, and it's full of salt. And the idea is you break a bit of the bread, and you dip it in the salt and eat it. And the idea is that we want to be friends with you for life. We want you to be our friends for life. That's what it signifies. That's a Jewish thing. I don't know whether they know that or not. Maybe they do because there's a lot of Jews live in Ukraine. In fact, the church we go to, some of the songs they sing are very Jewish, aren't they? And they have the Israeli flag up and they wave it. So maybe they do know that. But that's what it signifies. So when God gives a salt covenant, he's saying, my covenant, I want it to last. Now, how good and wonderful that was between God and the Hebrew race. That was wonderful. But now, you and I have a better covenant. We've got a new covenant, a new testament, a covenant of grace, a covenant of redemption. And do you know what? God means it to last. He means it to last. An everlasting, eternal covenant. In Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll just close with this. Hebrews chapter 9, it says in verse 11, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant." by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Glory to God. God has made a covenant with His Son for you. And it wasn't salt. It was His blood that sealed it. It was his blood that sealed it. What a covenant that was that he cut for us. Amen. So Jesus said, because we are in covenant relationship with him, he says that you are the salt of the earth. So when you go out from these four walls tomorrow, and you come in in contact with that corrupt world that's out there. You're the salt. You're the antidote for that. 
So let's be salt. Let's be ambassadors for Christ, as we said this morning, and let's be salt and let's be light. Let's be all that God intends us to be so that within our community or within our neighborhood or within our family or within our classroom or our factory floor, wherever we are, let us be the salt that God has placed there to purify and to make a difference where we are because we're the only ones that can do it. Amen? Let's pray.